Today's sermon is taken from Romans 3, verse 21 to 26. This is the word of God. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Thus says the Lord. Okay, if you have been with us for the past two months through the book of Romans, you have endured now three long chapters of Paul, who is the author of the book of Romans, talking about sin, how sinful we are, how unable we are to live as we should, and how our sin then takes us away from God's embrace to a deserving of His justice. And finally, after three long chapters, now in chapter 3, verse 21, Paul begins this section of the letter with the refreshing words, but now, signifying a turning point. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a renowned preacher in the early 1900s, described these two words, and I quote, as the most wonderful words in the whole of Scripture. And as I'm studying this passage, I hear these words, right? And I, I knew what was coming, right? I, I knew what was next. We're condemned sinners. We deserve God's justice. But now, because of Jesus' love for us, we're saved, right? That's, that, that's the formula, and I was just waiting for it. I was just waiting for Paul to lift up my burdens and give me peace, right, by talking about Jesus' love for me. But, but surprisingly, that's not what Paul does here. He does so in other passages, but not in this one. Paul here isn't primarily talking about Jesus' love for us, He's primarily talking about the Father's love for His own glory. That's what the passage is about. Take a look at it. God, referring to God the Father here, is mentioned five times, and Jesus is only mentioned three times. And even then, the times in which Jesus is mentioned is mentioned not in, in relation to His love for us, but He's mentioned in relation to how He displays the Father's glory in this world. Look at verse 22. Jesus Christ is mentioned here as a manifestation of the Father's righteousness on earth. And then in verse 24, Jesus Christ is described here as being put forward to, to showcase to the world the Father's grace. And then in verse 26, Jesus Christ is described here as someone who shows to the world the Father's justice. Now, of course, I'm not saying Jesus doesn't love us. Of course he does. But that is not the focus of this passage. The focus of this passage is that Jesus Christ is a means for the Father to display His glory, who He is, to the world. And, and when I saw this, I said to myself, well, that's kind of disappointing, <laughs> right? That, that's not the formula. That's not the order, Paul. It, it's supposed to be like this. First, bad news, I'm a sinner. And then the good news is that Jesus loves me. But, but this, Paul, this makes no sense. First, the bad news is that I'm a sinner, and then now the good news is that the Father loves his own glory? 
How, how is that good news to me? How does the Father's love for his own glory mean to give me rest and peace from rest and from the weight of my sin? Well, it does. And, and there's a reason why Martin Lloyd-Jones said these words are the most wonderful words in all of Scripture. What did he see? Well, let's, let's get into the passage. Paul's good news, Paul's gospel, as presented here, is that Jesus Christ came to earth. He lived and died, yes, to show his love for us, but chiefly to manifest the righteousness of God, to display the grace of God, and to vindicate the justice of God. Jesus Christ came to earth to live and die, to manifest the righteousness of God, to display the grace of God, and to vindicate the justice of God. Let's start with our first point, to manifest the righteousness of God. I want to start by reminding ourselves of what Paul's been saying for the past three chapters. Over and over and over again, he's been showing us that if left to ourselves, we would never be able to attain the kind of righteousness that an utterly holy and just God requires. Okay, that's what the past three chapters is about. I'm sure some of you know the case of uh, the Columbia Space Shuttle that exploded in 2003. Perhaps you've at least heard of it. The reason why it exploded is because while it's re-entry back onto Earth, it had to go through the Earth's atmosphere. And when it did that, there's this tiny crack in the spaceship's armor. And through that tiny little itsy-bitsy crack, the heat of the atmosphere went into the uh, uh, shuttle and, and it blew up. And, and we might think, you know, that's odd. You know, one little chip in the armor? I mean, come on. What's so bad about one small little chip in, in the armor? How did that cause a whole explosion? But see, the issue isn't how small or big the chip was. The issue was how hot the atmosphere is. Because the Earth's atmosphere was so incredibly intensely hot, even the smallest crack in the armor could prove to be fatal. Similarly, if we come in contact with God's holiness and justice and righteousness, the Bible claims, it is of such an intensity that even the smallest chip in our character, in our innocence, in our ethical purity, would be fatal for us. It's not about how small or big our flaw is. It's about how intensely holy, just, and righteous God is. And, And I totally get it. Right? Our tendency is when we hear things like this is to say, well, I don't really like a God like that. You know, why can't he just give in a little bit? Why does he have to be so strict and, and so demanding? But is that what we really want? A God who, who gives in a little bit? I, I don't think that's actually what we want. How do I know that's not what we want? Well, just take a look at what we've actually been chanting for the past two months. What is it that the world's been demanding, right? We've all been saying what? That we want close to total justice for those who are experiencing inequality? Is that what we're saying, just close to total justice? What have we been saying? We want 85 to 90 percent of fairness to those who are being discriminated? Is that what we've been chanting? Is that what we've been saying? No. We've been saying, what's our demand? We've been saying we want utter and complete justice for those who are victims of bigotry. We want utter and complete fairness to those who are being discriminated. That's what we've been demanding. But now think about that. How can we demand the universe be utterly just and fair, 
but yet at the same time go to the highest tribunal and judge of the universe and demand, but you, you know, give in a little. But you just kind of be 85% fair. Don't be that just. Don't be that righteous. Don't be that fair. Look, we can't have it both ways. Do we want the universe to be utterly just, righteous, and fair or not? See, we can't seem to make up our minds. And I totally get it. I do. I feel the tension in my own heart. I often demand utter justice, but yet call an utterly just God mean. I do that too. And I've been thinking about why do we do that? And do you know why that is? I think why we can't make up our minds. Because of fear. Anytime we have a hard time making up our minds about something, usually fear is involved. Isn't it? Who here has commitment issues? I mean, I, I like to think that every one of us, to some extent, have some kind of commitment issues, right? To a degree, I think. Why is that? Why do we often have a hard time committing and being decisive about things? Well, because consequences are involved and we're scared of them, right? If I commit to this, that could happen. If I commit to that, this could happen. So that fear makes us double-minded. We can't make up our minds. And I want to propose that we have a hard time committing to the idea of an utterly just, fair, and righteous God, not because our hearts don't long for that, but because we're scared. We know what the consequences of that is, and it terrifies us. And Martin Luther, one of the fathers of the Christian Reformation, he had the same struggle with us. Most of you know he was once a Catholic monk and he served in a monastery. And one day he realized what the Bible teaches about the kind of righteousness that he would need in order to be right with God. It, it, it's a no chip in the armor kind of righteousness, right? A perfect kind of righteousness. And he couldn't escape this reality. He clearly sees it in the Bible, so he committed to it. And you know what that made him do? <laughs> Committing to that idea made him start doing crazy things. Okay, One example for penance. He would climb to the very top of the monastery staircase on his bare knees, skinning his knees every step of the way. And as if that wasn't enough, on every step, he would also stop and pray <laughs> on his bloody knees. Also during winter in Germany, he would purposely sleep without the blankets on. You know how cold that is? Also, he'd go to the confession booth, not every day, but three times a day. Because the Bible said, you know, no chip in the armor, not even the slightest impure thought, not even the slightest self-centered motivation for obedience, nothing. So he worked to the bone to try and attain this kind of righteousness through his own obedience to the law. Until one day, he came across the very first verse of our passage today, Romans chapter 3, verse 21, and he read these words, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. And, and that phrase really stuck out to him, apart from. And you can just imagine, you know, Martin Luther with, with bleeding knees and perhaps a minor case of pneumonia <laughs> saying, what? Apart from the law? Where? What kind of righteousness is this? How can I find it? Well, let's take a look at verse 21. We'll see a few things here about this righteousness. First, this righteousness is described by Paul to be God's righteousness, meaning it's the perfect kind. It's got no chinks in the armor, right? It's perfect. It's flawless. 
The second thing we see is that this perfect righteousness is manifested. That means it wasn't just a conceptual idea. If something is manifest, that means at some point in history, people could see it with their eyes or else it wouldn't be manifested. Third, Paul says, the law and the prophets, meaning the Old Testament, bears witness to it. Through every lamb that was slain, through every priest and mediator that was appointed, through figures like Moses that led God's people out of slavery to the promised land, through prophecies like Isaiah's suffering servant. And you can just picture Martin Luther here with with frostbitten fingers, perhaps, right? Saying, okay, Paul, get to it. What is this righteousness? Where can I find it? And finally, Paul gives the answer in verse 22. He says, it's not what or where, it's who. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. The perfect righteousness of God the Father, Paul here says, has been made manifest or visible to the human eye and has been talked about throughout the Old Testament. Who is it? It's Jesus Christ, the manifested, visible righteousness of God. Now, how did Jesus Christ earn that title, God's righteousness? That's a pretty lofty title to earn. Well, he had to put work in. He had to obey perfectly all of God's laws as a human being, or else he doesn't deserve the title God's righteousness. And look, I got to point this out. That wasn't easy for Jesus to do. When we think about Jesus obeying God's laws on earth, for some reason, I think we often think that was kind of easy for him to do. It's just kind of naturally, effortlessly, you know, he's Jesus. He just does it naturally. But do you remember what happened in Gethsemane? Before he was crucified, what was he doing? He was on his knees, praying, sweating, begging his friends to not leave. You know, if you came home one day and saw somebody at your house in that position, you'd probably think to yourself, oh, they're not having an easy time. And what was Jesus saying in his prayers? Father, I really don't want to do this. I really don't want to do this. But then he grit his teeth. He mustered up the strength. He wiped his sweaty brows. He took a deep breath, and he said, But let not my will be done, but yours. The reason why the human Jesus earned the title, the righteousness of God, is because he put work in. Throughout his whole life here on earth, he grit his teeth, and he denied himself the same way we have to. He had the same limitations we had. He faced every temptation we did. But yet the book of Hebrews said he came out sinless. Not one flaw. The perfect righteousness of God. Can you imagine that? With all the hate he got, he loved perfectly. With all the gossip being said behind his back, he never once retaliated. Through all the injustice and discrimination that he got, he never once harmed his oppressor's back. His parents, throughout his childhood, misunderstood and wrongfully shut him down multiple times, (laughs) yet he remained loving and kind toward them. There was absolutely not one chip in his armor. Martin Luther felt Paul asking him here, you think climbing the monastery stairs on your knees is enough to reach God's righteousness? Oh, how lowly you must think of God's righteousness, Luther. It's not that easy. God's righteousness, his glory, it's it's way higher than anything you can achieve. You know, when people talk about verse 23 in our passage today, it says, all fall short of the glory of God. The focus usually is how short we fall. 
But I think primarily here the focus is how high God's glory is. We all fall short of it. It's, it's too lofty. It's too high. Only one man can reach it, and that is God himself incarnate, manifested in human flesh. Only he can do it now. Okay. How in the world does God, showing off his righteousness to, to the world in the person of Christ, you know, give this beat-up, frostbitten, bloodied knees, Martin Luther, peace? How? Well, it should give him at least some peace because now he knows that at least there is a perfect righteousness, a per- flawless righteousness available for him out there apart from his works to the law. But of course, it wouldn't give him complete peace just yet because there still remains one huge question. How can he get it? Because at this point, that righteousness is still outside of him. It's still apart from him in the person of Jesus Christ. How can God place that righteousness unto him? Well, this leads us to our second point. Jesus Christ came to earth not only to manifest the Father's perfect righteousness, but also to display the Father's grace. Let's get on to our second point. How can God place Jesus' righteousness that is outside, external of Luther, unto, unto him? How can he do that to sinners like us? The answer is in verse 25. It's described as a propitiation. A propitiation is like performing a trade. Let's read verses 23 to 25. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. A propitiation, a trade, as we see in this passage, includes at least two things, justification and leading to redemption. Okay, first let's talk about justification. Justification is the idea specifically of taking someone's sins away from him. It's, it's the idea of making somebody who was once guilty to becoming innocent from negative to neutral, so to speak. And we hear that and we say, yeah, I know when I become a Christian, my sins are put on Christ. I was guilty in death row and God came into prison and, and took me out, right? Yes. But if that's the extent of your understanding of the gospel, it's only partial and, and you won't have complete peace just yet. Because guess what could happen? And actually does often happen uh, to, to criminals who have been released. They mess up again and they go back to prison. <laughs> Which is what we do on a daily basis. Do we not sin again over and over again, even as Christians? But Paul here describes that the possibility of you going back to prison doesn't exist. Why? Because you're not only justified, you're redeemed all the way. What happened to you is not just that Jesus took on your sins, but what happened to you in your salvation is that Jesus took on your sins and you also took on his righteousness. That's how trades work. That's the, what, what uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 means. I'm going to read it here and notice the double trade switch language here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteous of God. There's a... There's a trade, theologians call this a double imputation. Christ took on our sins and we took on his righteousness. So the father, in other words, didn't just go into prison to take you out of prison. He goes into prison and took you back to his home and cleanses you and clothes you in a majestic robe and gives you a seat at a dining table, and feeds you from a plate, and gives you room to sleep in. And we look at all this, and we ask, 
Whose room is this? Whose clothes are these? Whose chair is this? Whose plate is this? Whose, whose food is this? And the father says, oh, all this belongs to my son. And we ask, where is he? And the father answers, he's at your death sentence right now. We made a trade, see, him for you, so that you can have all this. He's hungry and thirsty so that you may eat and drink all of this. He is naked so that you may wear this. He's dying outside of the city gates so that you may live in here. It's a trade. But why me, we ask? What makes me distinct? That you would specifically break down my prison door and not someone else's? Oh, no, no, no. The father responds, I didn't do this because there's anything distinct about you compared to anybody else. I did this to show the world how gracious I am. Look at the end of verse 22. That's why it says there, for there's no distinction. See, if there's a distinction, that'd be discrimination. You know what discrimination is? Discrimination is giving someone something they don't deserve based on a particular feature about them. Giving someone something, uh, someone something they don't deserve based on a particular feature about them, most commonly today based on race, age, or sex, right? Which, by the way, were the three distinctions that also existed during biblical times. People got discriminated back then for their race, age, and sex, even more than people today, believe it or not. People back then were ethnocentric, which is just a fancy word to say racist. <laughs> their race, their skin color, their ethnicity was the best, right? But into this world, into this culture, the God of the Old Testament did some pretty countercultural stuff. He told these people in Genesis chapter 12 that the purpose of their existence is to be a blessing to other cultures, to other nations. When the Egyptians wanted to join Israel after they left, Israel uh, left Egypt in ruin. Some of the Egyptians wanted to come with the Israelites, and God let them. When Rahab, a non-Israelite prostitute in Joshua chapter 2, wanted to be a part of Israel, God welcomed her. Isn't that interesting? And this one is even more interesting. Back then, uh, primogeniture was, was rampant. That just means the oldest son would always get the inheritance. But you read the Bible. Who is it God blessed? Over and over and over again throughout the Bible, the oldest or the youngest? Cain and Abel, who did God bless? Cain the older or Abel the younger? And after Abel died, who did God bless? Seth the younger. Jacob and Esau, who did God bless? Esau the older or Jacob the younger? Jacob's 12 sons, who, did, who was God with? The youngest, Joseph, the most unexpected, countercultural. In the story of the prodigal son in the New Testament, who did the father throw a party for? The eldest son or the younger son? And also back then, it was just assumed oftentimes that men were superior to women. They always just get inheritance. It, it's a, it was a men's world. But women in the Bible who received Christ were called by God as sons of God. Why? To emphasize that in God's kingdom, women too are worthy of the inheritance that in this world only men get. No sexism here. Job one of the few people in the Old Testament that is called righteous, okay? One of the few. You know one detail about him that God made sure to mention in Job chapter 42, verse 15? It's the fact that Job gave his daughters an inheritance among their brothers. That is not common back then. 
over and over again, God is trying to point out in this passage, in God's kingdom, there is no racism, there is no ageism, there is no sexism. He's proven this over and over again. What's the point? We're not saying that your culture isn't important. We're not saying that younger siblings are more important than older siblings. We're not saying that women are better than men. No. But we are saying that God, unlike the world, shows no distinction. Jesus didn't die for you because there's a distinction about you that made him do it. He died for you to show the world just how gracious the Father is. It's not about us, Paul says. It's about the Father's glory. And to be honest, when I heard this, I was, I was a bit offended <laughs> when I first saw this passage. It made me feel kind of less special. It kind of made me feel less distinct from anyone else and then I studied it more, and it grew within me this weird sensation of, of peace. And, and the best way I can describe it is like when you first uh, take an inflated balloon that's about to pop, you know what I mean, and, and you deflate it, right? You let it go. First, it kind of makes a lot of noise, and it kind of hurries around everywhere. But then after it's been emptied, it just kind of falls to the ground, deflated, humbled, not so loud and hurried anymore, just at rest. That's the best I can describe how this passage, I think, is meant to make us feel. Deflated, but not in a mean, self-degrading way, in a peaceful way. Because it's all about God, it's not about us. Now, Paul could have stopped his gospel presentation here, and it would have been sufficient, I think. But he continues. And this next point, I think, solidified Luther's peace. Jesus lived and died, not only to show God's righteousness, uh, not only to display the grace of God, but also to vindicate the justice of God, which is our last point. Now, okay, why did this trade, this propitiation, have to happen? Why couldn't the Father just simply break into prison, take you out, take you home, without giving up Christ? Why couldn't he just forgive our sins without a trade? Well, because that would have caused a problem, wouldn't it? What problem? Well, let's take an example from the Old Testament. This, I think, is a, a clear way to explain this. Take a sin in the Old Testament that God passed over, okay, that God forgave. One of the most obvious ones is, we mentioned this last week, but it's David's sin, right, with Bathsheba. Uh, he committed adultery, and then he killed her husband, Uriah, right, and took Bathsheba as his own wife. God passed over this former sin. He forgave David for it. Look at 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13. David, say to David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sins. You shall not die. And we look at that and we go, Wow, that's awesome. You know, hallelujah. God is gracious. I'm forgiven, David says. But let's not read the story just from David's perspective. Let's read it from Uriah's parents' perspective. Do you think they would have a problem with this? Of course they would. If I were Uriah's parents, I'd probably say, um, objection? <laughs> That's not fair. You can't just do that. That's unjust. But, you know, I guess you're God, so you can do whatever you want. You can just do anything, right? That's not how God wants to be known. That's not how he wants to present himself to this world because that's not who he is. Uriah's parents' possible accusation, alongside many people's possible accusation, must be answered for God to show the world who he is. How? 
How can God answer it? How can God forgive David's sins and be gracious? How can he forgive our sins, all the while still being just, fair, and righteous? Friends, a trade, a propitiation. Verse 25b to 26, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just. In other words, Jesus died so that the Father might be just in justifying you. Jesus died so that the Father could love you without being untrue to himself. Now, how does knowing that God in his meticulous justness, how, how does knowing that give Luther even more peace? Because now this should solidify his salvation. How? Because now he knows, he truly knows, that God will for sure never punish him for his sins again. He can't. Because if God punishes Luther for sins that has already been paid for, if God punishes you for sins that he's already paid for on the cross, what would that make him? That would make him unjust. And God is a just God. Christian, your assurance of salvation is found not only upon the righteousness of God, not only upon the grace of God, but it is also grounded upon the justice of God. And this is how Paul chooses to present the gospel for the first time clearly in this way in the book of Romans. And it just totally switches our paradigms completely. The focus no longer becomes me. Jesus didn't chiefly, ultimately, primarily die for me, but for the Father's glory. Jesus didn't die to show me how great I am. He died to show the world how great God is. Jesus didn't die to show the world that I'm special and different than anyone else. He died to show that the God of the Bible is special and different than any other God. Jesus didn't die primarily to meet my existential need for true love. Jesus died so that God could love a sinner like me and yet still be true to himself. It's a paradigm switch. So, so when Paul says, do you have faith in Christ? Do you have faith in this? Which he says three times in this passage, verse 22, verse 25, and verse 26. It must be pretty important if you mention it three times. Do you have faith in Christ? What does he mean? He means, don't you see, has it not been proven to you in the person of Christ through the cross that God is truly righteous, gracious, and just all at the same time? Do you believe that? Do you have faith in that? Do you believe this is who your God is? Because that's what the life and death of Jesus Christ is meant to show you. And if you do believe in that, then there should be no reason, really, for you not to receive the salvation right now, at this very second. You won't wait to try and be better first because you realize his righteousness is too high for you to achieve, no matter how long you wait to be better. So why not now? You won't wait to clean yourself up first because you realize that his grace doesn't favor anyone based on anything. So why not you? Why not now? Why not you? Well, because it just doesn't feel right, you know? You don't know my past, what I've done. It feels too easy. It feels so unfair. Oh, it is fair. 
the cost was paid. God is just in justifying, yes, even a sinner like you and me. So why not now? Why not you? And look, a nuance I want to be careful to not miss here. I don't want it to sound that like the Father did this just so that you'd be another tool for him, you know, to make him more righteous, more gracious, more just. No, no, no. He doesn't need to save you in order to be righteous, gracious, and just. <laughs> he is already righteous, gracious, and just throughout eternity. So then why do he do it? Yes, for his glory, first and foremost. Absolutely. But also for you. Because at the end of the day, he doesn't need you, but you utterly need him. So why not now? And why not you? What other excuse might one have to reject the Father's gift and the person of Christ on the cross? Why shouldn't your life too be a monument that displays God's righteousness and grace and justice? I pray that it would. Yes, for the sake of your own soul, but chiefly for the sake of the Father's glory. Let's pray. Father, help us take our eyes off ourselves, and the second we do so, we will realize that your righteousness could never be attained by our efforts, and that your grace can never uh, be too small, that is too, f that is too far from a sinner like me, and your justice too low, that you'd be unjust in saving somebody who's done the things I've done. You are utterly righteous, gracious, and just all at the same time, and the cross proves that. Give us the faith that we would never muster up on ourselves in this, to this. Use your spirit to penetrate deep into the hearts of those who are hearing this today beyond what any words of a preacher could do. Soften it, I pray. Make it beat, I beg you, so that many people who hear this, who hear your word today, will become children of yours, taken out of prison, brought back home to your abode, clothed in majestic splendor, bathed, clean, fed, sat down at a table and given your inheritance. Not because anything distinct about us, but because you are God, different than any other God. Help us see that. Why not now? Why not me? For the sake of your glory, Father, I pray. In Jesus and in his name alone. Amen.